Good evening, church family. Nice to have you join us here on Facebook Live. Let's open and pray. Father, we thank you for another night to be together here joining on Facebook. We thank you for this time in your word. We can learn about the prophecies of old, what they mean for us here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good evening. We are in Ezekiel, the 30th chapter, and we are still looking at the uh, prophecies for Egypt. There is much in this chapter about the allies of Egypt, and it will end in the proclamation against the Pharaoh of Egypt. There will be fear and anguish, though, that would come upon the allies as Egypt falls. So this was the question I asked. Why is this important for us to know? Now, the answer is, I'm sorry, the, the application is quite relevant to our day, but not just ours. Of course, right now, if you ever say it's applicable to our day, we're all thinking about, about one thing. But our day involves a whole lot more than one thing. It is possible that something like an Egypt has taken root in your life and a dependency has formed just like it has with these allies. But Egypts are not just evil things. Some may appear quite good. But we'll see from the Word of God and examples in it. Just what it, just what makes a Egypt Come along in your life. All right. Uh, just a review from last week. We talked about now you can't go back to Egypt. It seemed like Israel always wanted to go back to Egypt. Now they can't because Egypt is going to be destroyed. And so we asked you this question. What destructive or harmful things seem to be, seem to keep you going back to something? What is your Egypt? So Israel kept believing that Egypt was better, beneficial, and would take them to a better state. But since they wouldn't learn this on their own, God took away the goodness and the strength of the nation of Egypt. It didn't just take a toll on Egypt, though. It also took a toll on Israel. They lost just about everything they had. So we gave you four things that you need to teach yourself on your own so you don't have to learn it the hard way. First off, Egypt is not better than where God is leading you. Where God leads you may not seem all that great when you first get there, as it was for Abram, but it is better than any Egypt in your life. It is Egypt is not safer than the hands of God. It is not more willing to act and protect you. And it is not stronger than the hand of God. So Egypt will lose its hold on you if you can learn these things. Now there's some gave you some types of Egypt. Fear, anxiety, and worry. These are states that you fall into when things come upon us that tr- that uh, test us, try us, like Egypt was, I'm sorry, like Israel was in the wilderness. Every time they came upon a test or a trial, let's go back to Egypt. Every time they came against something that seemed to be too tough, let's go back to where we were. Let's go back to where we're comfortable. Even though it wasn't necessarily good there, we felt safer, we felt better. So fear, anxiety, and worry is something many keep going back into. Failure. Well, it's easier to fail than it is to, to succeed or to believe in success. Assumptions, this is easier than asking or seeking understanding. Sarcasm, this replaces building up and edifying. I just become sarcastic of people. Gossip, this brings me popularity, but it's not where God wants us to be. Doubt, faith takes work. We may have been in faith like the disciples were, and then all of a sudden a situation comes on, a storm comes up on the water, and we go from faith into doubt. We want to make sure we don't keep going back to our Egypts. All right, Ezekiel 30. In verse 1, before we get started here, you have to open up your own Bibles, uh, whether it's a tablet, phone, 
or the actual hard copy at home. We have no screen to show you, so um, you'll be able to, to get it there. But if you can, leave me a, a like, a comment, something along there. It just tells me that you were here tonight. Because if you come on and don't leave anything by the time you go away, I don't even know who was there. All right, Ezekiel chapter 30 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, woe to the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, Chub and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. Now this message has four parts to it. Each part is introduced with the words, Thus says the Lord. You're going to see this in verse 2, verse 6, verse 10, and verse 13. Now this is the only undated message that Ezekiel proclaims regarding Egypt. So we don't know where this was in relation to the others. Now the prophecy begins with a reference to the coming day of the Lord, which in a general sense is a day of judgment. In a specific sense, the day of the Lord is the end times, the day of the Lord when the day returns and brings judgment upon the earth. But in a general sense, it's any time that God brings judgment upon a nation or upon a place. Now here it says in the in the Bible when it lists these these folks that are here in verse five Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people. That's what you see in the King James and the New King James, the mingled people. This could refer to the children of Israel who fled to Egypt, that that uh, Jeremiah prophesied would fall, or other nations who either inhabited Egypt or the army because the army had some uh, mixed nations in it as well. Now, the historians of that era saw it as Israel and those who translated the Septuagint saw it the same way and used words that would have gone that in that direction. So some of your translations out there, some of them have uh, words like uh, the New Century Version, Cush, Put, Lydia, Arabia, Libya, and some of my people who had made an, arg- uh, an agreement with Egypt will fall dead in war. Now, the reason those differences come in is some of them took more from the Septuagint than they did from the Hebrew passages that they had. And that's where you're going to see that that difference because the people who had written the Septuagint apparently saw this mingled people as referring to the people of Israel in the land. We know that there were people of Israel in the land. We know that they were prophesied to fall and we know that they did. So very well it could be. Ezekiel 30, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, Those who uphold Egypt shall fall and the pride of her power shall come down. From Migdol to Syene, those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. They shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries, and her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are destroyed. On that day, messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt for it, for indeed it is coming. Now those who uphold Egypt shall fall. These are the allies. These are the people that have aligned themselves with Egypt. Now, other nations that are around and some of those nations have allied themselves and put people into their army. However it is that they are allied, 
they are going to fall as well. Those who uphold Egypt shall fall. So we know Egypt is a powerful nation, has been for a long time. They still have other nations that uh, rely on them for protection and also add some help into that. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Of course, this is the theme for Ezekiel. He always wants people to know that the prophecy is pointing to the fact that Jesus is, or that God is, is God. Jehovah is the God of all gods. He says, uh, you will know that I am the Lord when I have set fire in Egypt and all her helpers are destroyed. So there's two marks. When these things happen, you will know. Now, then it talks about some messengers. It says some messengers are going out in some boats and they're going to distribute this message. We all know bad news travels faster than good news. But these folks are going to be taking this message out that Egypt has fallen, Egypt is destroyed, and other people are going to hear about it and they're going to tremble. But it says that God is sending these messengers. They're coming, going, even though they may not serve God, even though they may not know that God is sending them, God is sending them with this message because he wants his message to go out to all of them. He wants them, if they depended on Egypt, if they relied on them in any way, he wants them to become in fear and anguish because that's not something they should have depended upon. And he said, great anguish shall come upon them. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So when the king of Babylon comes down and battles, a multitude, it says, will die. He and his people with him, the most terrible of the nations, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it. By the hand of aliens, I, the Lord, have spoken. So people are coming from outside of Egypt and they're going to destroy them. He said, I will make the rivers dry. So many things he has, he has promised to come upon them. This first one, uh, when it talks about the uh, army of Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 11, he and his people with him, the most terrible of the nations. The New Century Version translates it this way, Nebuchadnezzar and his army, the cruelest army of, the, of any nation will be brought in to destroy the land. They will pull out their swords against Egypt and will fill the land with those they kill. So terrible here means mighty, oppressor, in great power, strong, terrible, violent. He says, of all the armies that can come against you, this is a cruel army. And they will deal with you in a cruel way. In verse 12, he says, I will make the rivers dry. Now you remember in the prophecy before, Pharaoh was boasting that he made the Nile. And God says, I'm going to dry it up. I'm going to show you that your boast of being the source of the Nile, the creator of the Nile, is wrong. And so, the rivers, I will make the rivers dry. God is saying this. The rivers, being plural, the Nile feeds, uh, is fed by a number of uh, tributaries. And when all these dry, that's going to cut the water down that's going into that whole delta area. So you're going to have the forces of Babylon and the forces of nature. They're going to combine to bring Egypt to ruin. Not just the forces of Babylon are coming, but there's some natural forces that are going to dry up the water and that's going to to hurt them, to ruin them. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noph. There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. Now Noph here is uh, better known for us as Memphis. And uh, 
In the New Century Version, it translates it that way. This is what the Lord God says, I will destroy the idols and take away the statues of gods from the city of Memphis. They will no longer be a leader in Egypt and I will spread fear throughout the land of Egypt. So Memphis, of course, was the big major city for Egypt. He says, I will destroy the idols and take away the statues of gods. And we know that Egypt had a lot of gods and they made a lot of statues to them. And God's going to take them away. He says in verse 14, I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgments in No. You get into different translations, they'll translate this differently. New Century Version will, will say this way, I will make the southern Egypt empty. So instead of Pathros, and there's reasons why they, they translate that southern Egypt, <clears throat> I will make southern Egypt empty and start a fire in Zoan and punish Thebes. Uh, Thebes is a little bit better known to us than No. So we're, uh, that's probably why they go with that, uh, translating it that way. Uh, I didn't check on that one. I think the Septuagint also helped them in that translation. Ezekiel 30, verse 15. <clears throat> I will pour my fury on sin, the strength of Egypt, and I will cut off the multitude of No and set a fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain. No shall be split open and Noph shall be in distress daily. Now sin, this uh, refers to a fortress that stood on the eastern branch of the Nile. It was surrounded by swamps and its position made it in modern phrase the, the key of Egypt. Uh, some historians, I hope I get their names right, Suedas and Strabo describe it as an obstacle to invaders from the east, which is where most of their uh, most of their threats were coming was from the east. So this was a big important uh, place for them. This would be a place that they could uh, uh, be a protection, kind of the first line of defense if someone were to come in there. And it was a stronghold. It was a fortress. He says um, in verse 15, I'm going to read to you the New Century Version. And I will pour out my anger against Pelusium. They uses that word uh, to describe the city. The strong place of Egypt. I will destroy great numbers of people in Thebes. Again, it's just uh, using different uh, words to describe the same city, uh, depending on uh, what uh, time it was that, you, that uh, the people were familiar with as far as the name of the city. Uh, verse 17, The young men of Aven and Pi, Besath, shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. Now, Aven and Pi, Besath, is, uh, I don't know if this is any better for you, Heliopolis and Bubastis. Now, Bubastis comes from the Septuagint. It is uh, translated there as Bubastos, which is, you know, we would get, of course, uh, Bubastis from that. The city is situated on the Suez Canal, and it was begun by Necho, Pharaoh Necho, and finished under Ptolemy, which was not a, not a pharaoh. It derived its name from the cathead goddess uh, Pasht, and was the chief seat of the home which was named after. It was destroyed by the Persians, but the name lingers in Tabestat, a heap of ruins about seven hours' journey from the Nile. So that city was built by Necho, finished by Ptolemy, and destroyed by the Persian kings when they came through. Verse 18, At Tahafanes, 
The day shall also be darkened when I break the yokes of Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughters shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I see something, somebody is saying something is not better. So uh, I am not sure what that is. But if it's anything that I can correct, you have to let me know. Now, naming the, what he's doing here is naming the great cities of Egypt for destruction. This shows how complete the devastation will be. We're going to take all the great cities of the nation and they're all going to be tied into to destruction. So the cities of the lower and upper Egypt, they form the northeastern branches of the Delta area to the southern reaches of the Nile River and all would succumb to divine devastation. The archaeological remains that may still be seen show just how splendid the ancient cities of Egypt were. They embodied extraordinary human achievement in their fine architecture and massive structures, but the city's symbols of human strength and progress, they just could not stand up against the prophecies, against the judgment of God. So we go back there and we look at these. People love to go back and look at the uh, ancient cities of Egypt and see the ruins and see the things. And even to this day, they still are, uh, they, they mesmerize us. We look at these, these structures and these are the ruins, not the actual city when it was in its glory. So Egypt represented an extraordinary civilization in the sixth, in the sixth century and one that still, still just, uh, captivates us today. The pyramids and all the, all the things surrounding the, the um, uh, pharaohs and their burial places. We still have a fascination with that. It, was, it had been a strong kingdom for some 2,500 years. 2,500 years. There is no parallel to that in our modern civilization. Rome is the closest that would come to that. But 2,500 years to remain one of the top powers, many times the top power in the, in the world. But this old, ancient, and seemingly imperishable civilization was just as vulnerable to the judgment of God as any other nation or people. No matter how strong something looks, no matter how impossible it seems that it would come down, if they come against the things of God, they will. The strength and greatness of any heathen nation will crumble when judgment from Jehovah appears. All that can stand before him are the fruits of righteousness, faith, and humility. We come before him with anything else, we shall not stand for long. Uh, verse 20 of Ezekiel 30. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, here we're going back to a date. This gives us a date of about April 29th, 587. Again, we're maybe a year off on, on some of these. It depends on which historian you follow. Uh, this is just a few months before the final defeat of Jerusalem. The per first prophecy in chapter 29 was dated the 10th year, 10th month, 12th day, or January 7th, 588 uh, B.C. or 587 B.C. Uh, this is just a few months before the, the siege and eventual destruction. This, uh, this one here, we're looking at about, what did I, uh, about two months 
after the prophecy of chapter 29, the first prophecy of chapter 29, this one comes up. Verse verse 21, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. So when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in 588 B.C., Pharaoh Hophra did initially come to Zedekiah's assistance, but was retreated, was uh, defeated, and returned to Egypt. And this just uh, caused a momentary break in the siege Babylon had set up. It uh, wasn't a very long battle; they didn't dedicate very much to it, and they lost a lot when they had engaged in this battle. So this defeat set up a defeat by Nebuchadnezzar later on when they would come down. And because of this defeat, it caused some uh, turmoil down in uh, Egypt and his leadership changed. And when Nebuchadnezzar came down to fight against Egypt, there wasn't much left to fight and the battle was, was a fairly easy one for him. When it says there in verse 22, and will break his arms, this passage is uh, talking about Pharaoh and how helpless he would be to hold up a sword. So if you break the arm you are taking away the ability to hold a sword and that's the ability to fight. So that's what God is referring to here when he talks about breaking his arm. He won't be able to defend himself against any invading army. Verse 23, I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. I will strengthen the arm. So he's going to break the arm of Pharaoh but he's going to strengthen the arm of the king of Babylon and he's going to put the sword of God in his hand. I will break Pharaoh's arms. Now we've got a plural. So uh, break one arm. Now he's got one strong arm. God's going to come and break this, the other one. And he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded, wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down. They shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now it doesn't seem that all the Egyptians were scattered but when the Persians came down it did seem like they had taken some. We covered that in the last chapter. They had taken some captives and it seemed that they released them as the prophecy said that God would do. Now there's another passage that wanted us to see and this is over in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1. This is also talking about Egypt. Isaiah says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me and who devise plans but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could, could not benefit them or be helped or benefit. But a shame and also a reproach, the burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lions, lioness and lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent they will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys 
and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit for the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Hem Shabeth. Now go, write it before them on a tablet. Note it on a scroll that it be for a time to come forever and ever that this rebellious people lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord who say to the seers do not see and to the prophets do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Can you imagine that? I don't want to know the truth. Please tell me lies. Prophesy the lies. Tell me that God says these things even though He didn't say it because I'll feel better if I hear that. This is not written for today. This is, this is back then. Of course, we know people today want the same thing. Don't tell me what the Word of God says. Don't tell me what the truth is. Don't tell me what God's Word is for today. Uh, tell me that everything's going to be okay. Tell me that everything is, that God loves us and that I'm going to heaven and uh, sin's not going to be punished. These are the things people want to hear. He said, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, <clears throat> because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, because you despise this word. Boy, there. How easy it is for us sometimes to get in that place where we despise the words of God because it doesn't agree with something on the inside of us. I don't like that. I don't want to hear that. I don't think that's right. And we despise what the Word of God has said. And trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be on you like a branch ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. So this is against Pharaoh, but it's also against the children of Israel and their dependence on false things. And of course, they had a great dependence on Egypt and on Pharaoh. In Second Kings chapter 24, and verse 7, and the king of Egypt did not come out of his land any more, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So when he came out to defend Israel, he would never come out again because so much was taken at that battle by Babylon <clears throat> that they wouldn't have any more strength to come out. So Babylon would go down to them next and attack them and destroy them. And God said, I'm going to dry up the Nile and make it easier for them to get across. Now, the most important thing, I think some of the reasons people don't always look at the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other ones like that, is we look at them and we say, well, that was for them, but how does this mean anything for me? These are the most important things we can have, is how do we take what God said to these people and bring it to a place where it's important to us? So I put this in your outline. I think these are the only blanks that you've got there. Uh, they don't have many blanks anyway. It is foolishness to seek deliverance from him, her, or those that will receive God's judgment. If you look at what they're doing, for them it was a him, it was Pharaoh, but whether it's a him or her, or it's several hymns or hers, so there would be those, if we seek deliverance from people that are under the judgment of God, we're fools. How can someone who's under the judgment of God deliver us? And so prophets like Isaiah, 
Jeremiah, Ezekiel prophesied doom on Egypt. And yet the children of Israel kept looking to Egypt for their help. So they're not believing the words of the prophecies. They're believing what they want. And they were acting foolish. It is foolish foolishness to seek a natural or a human or even a political solution to a spiritual problem that affects a nation. It's kind of like dealing with the waves instead of the wind. There's a spiritual problem that can come in that can cause these things. That spiritual problem can be the pride of God's people, not willing to repent, not willing to be humble before God, not willing to operate in the way that God has said to do. So many things. The devil knows if he can get us into pride. Our way is right. What I heard is correct. And I can't be corrected. Can't be changed. It can be a problem. So when actions of the people have brought about a crisis, it's their sin, it's their disobedience, it's their treatment of the worship of God, the temple of God. These are the things that brought it about. So they brought about a crisis on them. That crisis can be external. It can be internal. It is the inner roots of sin and corruption that we have to deal with more urgently than the approaching danger. It is more important that we get the spiritual atmosphere right than it is that we deal with all the things that that crisis brings upon them. Israel, they didn't want to deal with the spiritual problems of making things right with God, of having that time of repentance, of picking which words they decided to believe. We don't want to believe Ezekiel's word. We've got this other prophet over here. We like his word better. He's saying that Egypt is going to come to help. He's saying that Babylon is not going to come down and, and, and uh, destroy Jerusalem. Ezekiel, we don't know where you're getting your words from. We like these words better. But they're not dealing with the spiritual problem. They're trying to deal with the, the, the problem of Babylon. And they see a way to get around that is Egypt. But Egypt, according to Isaiah, according to Jeremiah, and according to Ezekiel, is under the judgment of God. Pharaoh himself is under the judgment of God. So the head of the nation is under judgment and the nation itself. And God has said, this is what's going to happen. And he even gave them the, the outline of what was going to go on. There was going to be an initial battle that would cause them to be weakened. Their arm would be broken. And then Babylon would go down. God says, they didn't get paid for what they did for me up in Tyre. So I'm going to, I'm going to give them Egypt's riches to pay them back. So I'll ask you this question. Are there Egypts in your life that you look toward for help? Something in your life that might be under the judgment of God? A person who is a sinner or immature Christian who does things in the flesh, they're not likely in Egypt. They're just an immature Christian. And take a look at Nebuchadnezzar for this. Nebuchadnezzar, we know from the book of Daniel some of the things that went on with him. And sometimes he was on the side of God and sometimes he's building... Uh, golden images for people to bow down and worship. Another time he's making it illegal to to pray. And other times he's out there saying anybody who worships any other God but the God of Daniel is uh, is going to be killed. So he goes back and forth on this. He, uh, he gets very prideful and he gets sent out into the pasture in the fields and he's eating grass. And then afterwards he comes to his senses and he repents and he gets back into the throne and he declares the greatness of God. But Nebuchadnezzar, God says, I'm going to strengthen his arm 
I'm going to give him my sword. He's going to go about and he's going to do my work. He did his work over in Tyre. He did his work when he came down into Israel. This was what, these were missions that God sent him on. And then he sent him on the, the mission against Egypt. Now, sons of Nebuchadnezzar came up after that and they didn't quite follow the way of God the way Nebuchadnezzar did. Even though he didn't do great, he did it a whole lot better than, than all the other kings. And Pharaoh was nowhere even near the ballpark of Nebuchadnezzar. So I put this in your outline. And Egypt is one who hits on the things God hates, not just sins. We sometimes look at people that are in leadership, people that are in positions of power, and we see sins that they do, and we say, well, they can't be of God. But just about every one of us is guilty of sins. Not all of us have have, uh, cleansed our life completely from all sins, and yet God still uses us. If God can still use us with the sins that we have, surely He can still use leaders even though they still have sins. Nebuchadnezzar was a great example of this. Even though he still had issues, he still had problems, God was able to use him. But Pharaoh, with his pride and all the other things that were listed about him, God couldn't use, and he was under the judgment of God. There's a passage in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Now, I wrote seven blanks there for you. You can write these in as you as you choose. Seven things. I didn't take it straight from this list, though. I was looking at this list and I was looking at the prophecies that we have that are against kings in the books of Ezekiel, other ones in the books of Jeremiah, and took some of the things that are common. What is it that puts us on a list that we would become, like Egypt, one under judgment? What would make a a leader this way? What would make an Egypt in our life under judgment? Because if I have an Egypt in my life, something that I depend on, that is under the judgment of God, I'm going to be in the same boat as the Israelites. I keep putting my trust into something that God has said I'm going to judge. And when I judge it, it won't be there for you to rely on. So here's the first one. Pride and arrogance that lead to rising to deity or above God's status. We're not just talking regular pride... God resists the proud. We know that. But we have to get to a place greater than that for that judgment to come down. For us to come under a place of judgment like Pharaoh is said to be under here. So when I have pride and arrogance that is so great that it leads to arising to deity. I see myself as deity. I see myself as a stat- above the status of God. Which in last week, the prophecy in chapter 29, he said, I, I am a God. He said, uh, I created denial. We saw in the city of Tyre that he raised himself to a godlike status. And God put them under judgment for that. So we're looking at a pride and arrogance that lead to a rising to deity or above God's status. If these people, if these things that are in our life have that kind of pride, it's going to hurt us. That's the first thing. Here's the second. <clears throat> Leads people away from God. This will bring you into the judgment of God. We saw this uh, a good bit in the New Testament. 
But we also saw it in the Old Testament with some of the false prophets who were trying to lead Israel away from the things of God. Then Ezekiel would come and he would prophesy and others would come and they would prophesy something different. They would go in a different direction. Jeremiah down in, in um, Israel, in Judah, he would prophesy one direction and other people would rise up and contradict that. And the king would like to listen to some of those things, but he knew in his heart that these aren't, isn't quite right. And we saw one time in the scriptures, he pulled Jeremiah out of the pit that he was in. And he said, tell me again what the word of the Lord is. Even though he had all these lying prophets around, it just didn't satisfy him on the inside. He knew they were, they were not right. And so he, he gave them the word again. But a person who leads people away from God, these are not people that you can depend on. I think sometimes of some of the spiritual leaders we have in our country and some of the things that they teach people, some of the people that are teaching this, uh, this grace that is so great that no one needs to repent anymore, that God's not going to judge anyone, that all are saved. That's leading people away from the things of God. There's a judgment that they will come under. And the people who depend on them, who put a dependency on them, are going to come to the same problem that the allies of Egypt did, that Israel did when Egypt was pulled out from under them. Here's the third one. Persecutes, harms God's people. When we have leaders who persecute or harm the people of God, God rises up to defend His people. He rises up to, to stop them. If we have leaders in our country, leaders in another country, and they rise up to harm the people of God, they put themselves under judgment. During Paul's day, we sure saw this with the uh, Caesars. They weren't quite as uh, godlike when Jesus was, was on the earth, but it didn't take them very long to get from the state where they were, where Jesus was on, where they were getting to the place of, of being godlike, to um, uh, causing people to worship them. And some cities were completely given over to the emperor worship, worshiping the Caesars. And Paul wrote some of his letters to, to some of these people and the persecution they came under, that if they did not worship the emperor, that they would be killed in a very, uh, very painful way. And when people began to do that and to persecute the people of God, judgment came upon them. We're going to see that even in the end times when Antichrist rises up against the people of God and the judgment of God that comes down upon him for that. Number four, instigates or mandates false worship and desecrates holy things of God. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the kings that came after him, especially the, uh, the one who called Daniel into the room and after the hand wrote on the wall, because they had gone into the house, the storage of the things of the house of God, and they brought out the dedicated holy instruments of worship to use at their drunken party. And when that happened, while they were using the instruments of God for this, a hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And we know that one of those things that it wrote was, you have been measured and found wanting. And their time is up. And it wasn't long, I think it was that night, that the city fell. And Daniel gave the prophecy about what would happen. But people that instigate or man, uh, mandate a false worship and desecrates the holy things of God, 
These are people that are moving themselves under the judgment seat of God. When I look at some of the leaders that come up in our country, political, spiritual, church leaders, leaders of state, leaders of uh, national leaders, whatever they might be, I take a look at these four things and they're filled with pride and arrogance so much so that they think that they are above God. When they lead people away from the things of God, when they persecute or harm people of God or people that hang on to the truth, when they instigate, mandate a false worship and desecrate the holy things of God. I know those people have moved themselves into a place of being judged by God and I cannot have any dependency upon them at all. When we look at these desecrating of holy things in the Old Testament, <clears throat> this was the temple. Instruments of worship, sacrifice, prophecies, sacrifice of infants. Boy, we saw how much God hated that, didn't we? He was, he mentioned it so many times in the prophecies against Israel, the prophecies against other nations. In the New Testament, we see this with the Word of God, how they, uh, said false things about the Word of God, how they attributed false things to God. We saw this was even done in the temple of God with believers. Desecration would go on. Now we see, uh, well, we know that Antichrist is coming and we know that he will desecrate the temple. We see political leaders who lead a nation into all types of abortion. Boy, in, in the recent year, how many uh, mayors or, or governors have uh, just expanded the abortion that even if a child is born alive, they can be killed because they were intended to be aborted. Can you imagine that? Partial birth abortion. Who would have even conceived that that would have been, been impossible? Or the, the leaders in certain states who would cheer because abortion was just made that much easier or could be accomplished so much later. Cheered. We're glad because these could go on. These same people want to try and say they're doing things to save lives. And yet they do things to make sure that they, they don't. Even now we're going through all these shutdowns. How many states have made sure that abortions would still carry on? I know some states have made sure that they stopped. But boy, there's an awful lot of states to make sure that they carry on. We've got to make sure we still kill the babies. That's still an essential practice. How many leaders, especially political ones, but certainly spiritual ones as well, make false declarations of God's Word? Well, God is this, and they'll say this about God. They'll state this about God's Word. They'll state this about God's will and His purpose. And if you know the Word of God, you know they are so wrong in what they're stating. But they say, state it, matter of fact, as if they're right. Because of the leadership they're in, and because of the influence their words have, They've placed themselves under the judgment hand of God. Well, that's four things. Let's go on here for number five. Here's number five. Stirs up discord. That comes right out of Proverbs. Basically, you're the wind in the storm. When Jesus got up, he spoke to the wind first, and then he spoke to the waves on the sea. But when you stir up discord, the discord amongst the people may be the waves, but you were the wind. These leaders who stir up discord among people who say things that seems to be purposeful. It's not truthful. It's, it's partial in, in what it reveals. But it's all formulated in a way 
to make sure that people get upset and get angry at each other. They stir up discord. When leaders do this, they move themselves under the judgment of God. Don't depend on those leaders. Here's the sixth one. Spreads lies instead of the truth. Boy, does the media ever come under this one. God says he hates a lying tongue. So many times we see the news media fabricating news, even with this crisis that uh, uh, is upon our nation. You would think if it is as bad as it is, why do they have to make up stories? Why do they have to falsify reports? Why can't they tell us what is going on instead of making all these things? If it really is the crisis that they say it is, then the report should be able to be borne out. But they spread lies instead of truth. Boy, does the media ever do this. Here's the seventh one. This is the killing of the innocent. God says, those who shed innocent blood. We have those who campaign about how they're going to make sure that abortion is carried on. That abortion will not be stopped. And in fact, we're going to make it even more. Campaign on such things. How is it that Christians can not only vote for, but depend on people who do this? I I don't understand it. You're putting yourself behind a person who has declared themselves against the things of God, against the things that are important to God. We We cannot be siding with them. And if we're going to vote for certain people, I've always said I am not a one-issue voter. And even uh, for president, uh, I know that there's, there's limited power he has in the area of abortion. But it sure seems like they're finding more and more ways to get this power going on. We have to get the heart of God on these things. And there is no perfect candidate out there. There's no perfect one. But we have to get the heart of God on it and not our own. The killing of the innocent. Not just the killing of, of uh, innocent blood like babies. But we've had many a story of people who just suddenly die because they rose up against the certain leaders. Not just in China, not just in Russia, but in other countries too. This is people who say, you are in my way. I will, I will kill you because you're in my way. These are attitudes we cannot support. These are people that are judging, are being judged by God. And they are in Egypt. And if we rely on them in any way, we will be not only disappointed, but just as this passage brings out, that the allies will fall into anguish. And many of the allies came into destruction as well. Make sure we're not in the side of destruction. Make sure we're not allied to Egypt's, to ones that God has said, my judgment is on that house. I gave you seven things here to help you realize whether the judgment was on someone or not. Uh, You might be able to find some other things in the Word of God, but I think this is a pretty good list to start with. Pride and arrogance that lead to a rising to deity or above God status. Number two, leads people away from God. Three, persecutes, harms God's people. Instigates or mandates false worship and desecrates holy things. Stirs up discord. Basically, you're the wind in the storm. Spreads lies instead of the truth and the killing of the innocent. There are many Egypts that have risen after Egypt that the people of God depended on, but they shouldn't have been depended on. 
they shouldn't have trusted in them. They should have trusted in their God. Always trust in the Lord your God. Don't trust in people that are more apt to spread lies, that are more apt to give false truth, that are more apt to try and stir up fear, dissension, distrust. Don't put your trust in them. Keep your trust in the Holy One of God. Don't ever get tired of what the Word of God says. When the Word of God comes to us, we may not always like it, but it is always for our benefit. Father, I thank you that you are our God. You are the God who helps us in all things. And even though we're not perfect, you love us and you care for us. And there is no Egypt that will respond to us more, care for us greater, or bring us to a better state. You are the one. And if people line themselves up against the things of God, we cannot be on their side. We must be on the side of our God. Help us, Father, to identify Egypt's that might be in our life things that we depend on that you have said are set and prepared for judgment. People that you have spoken words against and because we know your heart because we know how you have dealt with people in the past we can see who these people are through the things you tell us that you hate through the things that you show us that you've judged others for. We thank you for the wisdom we glean from your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.